From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. On the show today, it's all about newspapers. Newspapers have played a complex role in the rich history of Louisiana. From the Civil War era, through Reconstruction, and into the modern day, news media has brought us dialogue on divisive politics, conversations with diverse populations, and in-depth looks into the natural disasters that sometimes plague our state. Now the Historic New Orleans Collection is presenting a panel discussion on Louisiana's newspaper history. For more, WRKF's Adam Voss spoke with Drury Honoré, the Historic New Orleans Collection's family historian, and Amy Williams, manager of programs. So first off, Amy, what was behind the decision to make the history of newspapers in Louisiana the focus of your symposium? What was it that made newspapers a compelling topic? Well, we pick a subject every year. This is our 28th annual history symposium. And so we really do a survey of topics that we think are going to be of interest and have new information to share. So there's a committee that works behind the scenes, and we look at different topics. This year, I can let folks know it came down to newspapers versus history of public health. So that's the variety of topics that we look at. And we just felt that newspapers are universally appealing. Everybody needs the news in their life. Let's do a deep dive and teach people how the history of newspapers and how that's relevant in their life today. All right. So outline for me the broader eras of history in which newspapers played an outsized role here in Louisiana. Could you give us the the introduction, if you will? Uh, Sure. Uh, Honestly, everything. You know, the newspapers and the news are important to every aspect of our daily lives. And really one of the reasons that this is such an important topic is that newspapers not just record what's happening, but they also reflect back. So newspapers capture every aspect of a community, record it, and reflect it back. So it's a really wonderful record for historians and people to be able to look back and see what was important across communities at every period in time. So we'll be looking at from early black newspapers, civil rights, the alt-weeklies, we're looking at reconstruction era newspapers, we're looking at how media covers natural disasters and how important that is, especially here in our state. And then we'll be looking at media acquisitions and how the historically, uh, up through the very present time, how mergers and acquisitions impact the way people can access information that's important to them in their lives. Jerry, tell us about the Civil War era. How do newspapers contribute to the greater dialogue around the conflicting viewpoints of that point in history? Well, the Civil War, we often simplify it to just blue and gray, north and south, but it was a highly politicized time, very fractious time in our history. Uh, For example, one of the papers that will uh, actually be the focus of the keynote of the symposium is the New Orleans Tribune and its predecessor, L'Union, which was first published in September of 1862, actually the first black newspaper published below the Mason-Dixon line, uh, just a few months after New Orleans fell. Uh, to the Union Navy, uh, Dr. Louis Charles Rudinez, uh, his brother, and uh, other members of the community of free men of color organized the newspaper as a radical voice coming from the Deep South. Uh, their very first editorial was entitled Les Lavages. The newspaper was bilingual, uh, or slavery in English. They were advocating for the abolition of slavery. And every political issue that emerged uh, during the war and in the aftermath of the war during Congressional Reconstruction, they tackled uh, with this strong editorial voice. 
And now fast forward for us, if you will, to the Reconstruction era. How did newspapers here play into the ferocious politics of that part of history? Absolutely. The newspapers, I think, help us to chronicle um, the often changing intra-party rivalries, uh, the various factions that formed, particularly within the Republican Party. Uh, Many people may not realize that uh, in the post-Civil War South, uh, there were moderates, there were the perhaps better-known radical Republicans who wanted, you know, an immediate change to society, uh, open access to public schools, public accommodations, and things like this. Um, And then there were questions about representation and who were the best voices and the best faces um, to represent the Republican Party in the South. So all of those things are chronicled with um, the editorials in newspapers of that era. And I could hop in and say that we are going to cover the Reconstruction era in an interesting way. So Dr. Michael Ross, uh, he's a historian and ex-New Orleanian, um, is going to talk about the Digby kidnapping case from 1870. And that was a case where a little white girl was kidnapped and two black women were put on trial and convicted of that kidnapping. And the media went bananas. So he's going to talk really about all the different ways that different papers covered that case and all the implications of that case in the Reconstruction era. So we are really delighted to be able to bring that era to life through this story of the kidnapping case. We're speaking with Amy Williams and Ariana Ray of the Historic New Orleans Collection. We're talking about the history of newspapers in Louisiana. You mentioned New Orleans being the home of the first black newspaper south of the Mason-Dixon line. Could you tell us a little bit more about the place Louisiana had in the development of black newspapers? Well, perhaps even better known than L'Union was its successor paper, La Tribune de la Nouvelle Orléans, or the New Orleans Tribune, which was actually the first black daily anywhere in the country. started in 1864, uh, and its last issues appear about 1870. It was followed by a succession of newspapers, one of the better known being the Crusader, which was the voice, the organ of the Comité des Citoyens, or Citizens Committee, behind the Plessy versus Ferguson case. And of course, one of the papers that still exists is the Louisiana Weekly, which will be celebrating its centennial um, as the longest-lasting black newspaper um, in Louisiana. Uh, so throughout our history, we've always uh, had these newspapers that reflect the times and reflect voices that were not heard uh, in the mainstream press. Hmm. And finally, I understand you're also going to address the lessons that the media has learned from coverage of natural disasters. Could you tell us what the media in the modern era has taught us about that? Um, So in Louisiana, natural disasters, as we all know, are very important in terms of being able to share news quickly. So newspapers had to learn how to adapt immediately, you know, pre-internet. How do you share news? How do you get the news to people who are displaced? How do you give vital information to the people who need it? At the same time, we have to share information nationally in order to, because this is a big news story, in order to draw attention and draw resources to the area that needs help. That's that's a big a big ask. It's a hard a hard thing to do, and our newspapers are in a unique position where they've had to do it over and over again. Katrina, the oil spill, several times we have had to learn and relearn how to cover the event as it's happening, and then learn how to keep the story going, how to share the needs that are continuing, how to keep people who are impacted updated about what's happening. Um, Dr. Andrea Miller and Dr. Sharon Roberts 
They edited a really important book called Media Lessons from Hurricane Katrina and the Deepwater Horizon. So they'll talk about those media lessons themselves. And then they're going to be paired with David Hammer, who most folks locally know, covered the Deepwater spill in detail on the ground. And he's going to be talking about his experiences covering that disaster. These and more insights about the history of newspapers in Louisiana will be up for discussion at Above the Fold, the History of Newspapers in Louisiana, an event taking place at the Historic New Orleans Collection Saturday in New Orleans. Zoriana Ray and Amy Williams, both of the Historic New Orleans Collection, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. In light of our look at newspaper history, we wanted to go back into the archives and bring you the story of a newspaper pioneer. Eliza J. Nicholson was a small-town poet born in the 1840s in Mississippi, but she'd go on to become the first female publisher of a major metropolitan newspaper, The Picayune in New Orleans. NPR's Lane Kaplan-Levinson brought us the story of Nicholson in an episode of the Tripod podcast. Today, we give that story a second listen. This is Tripod, New Orleans at 300. I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson. Having a crush on someone can be fun, even if you know there's no chance of anything ever really coming to fruition, like when that person's been dead for 120 years. I have kind of a little bit of a crush on her. It's, it's kind of strange to say that, but she's this figure that is just so romantic in her own light. That's Joseph Makos. You might remember I talked to him about the bear and bull fights that happened here in the 19th century. And you might remember he's a newspaper junkie. When we met for that story, we also ended up talking about his history crush, Eliza J. Nicholson. Mentioning her name to others since then, I noticed a lot of people feel similarly to Makos. If you know who this woman is, you're passionate about her. She was the first woman to publish a major newspaper in the country with the New Orleans Daily Picayune. But Joseph Makos says her career didn't start with hard news. It started with poetry. She was this kind of girl from the country who was, you know, had this really love for animals and love for nature. And I think her earliest poetry really reflected that. She was born in Mississippi in 1848. Her family had money, and girls in her position, who didn't need to work, were expected to get married and stay home. But she wanted to have a career. Enter Pat Brady, another Eliza enthusiast. Pat's a writer and historian who wrote the chapter on Eliza Nicholson for a book called Louisiana Women, Their Times and Lives. She says Eliza wasn't just writing these little ditties for kicks, but her parents weren't cool with her chosen career or her having one at all. And they were scandalized. They could not believe when she started writing. And as she said, she wanted to be paid for what she wrote. Why do you think, you know, she kind of had that brazen nature? Well, she was a redhead. You know, (laughs) you know how redheads are. She was a tiny little woman. She was five feet tall, little bitty hands, very, had a little pug nose and, and lots of red hair. Looks like Pat caught some feelings, too, along the way for Eliza, but not for her poems under her pseudonym Pearl Rivers, a nod to the Pearl River that connects Mississippi and Louisiana. Her poetry isn't that good, really, but it did give her the attachment to newspapers. Newspapers used to be the main audience for 
fiction. So Eliza left home, moved to New Orleans, and started submitting her poems to the Picayune. Before long, she was hired as the paper's literary editor. People couldn't quite believe how determined she was. And the, the owner of the paper, who was a much older man, he was about 35 years older than she was, was just in the process of getting a divorce from a wife who said she just couldn't wait to get rid of his scabby old body. Who happened to be Eliza's boss, Colonel Alva Holbrook. They fell for each other and got hitched. And that ex-wife who couldn't wait to get rid of the colonel? Well, suddenly she realized old and scabby wasn't too shabby. Or she just went a little cuckoo, says Amanda McFillin, who works at the Historic New Orleans Collection. And so she came to the house and tried to kill Eliza Jane. She had a gun. Uh, she fired at her twice, missed, thank goodness, and then uh, hit her over the head with some object. And the, luckily, the maid that was there at the time came to Eliza Jane's rescue, and Eliza Jane was able to run to a neighbor for safety, and she got out of this safely. Uh, but that incident, even though she was the victim, was scandalous. Her reputation took a big blow. She was horrified. The scandal made all the papers. They were all fighting for circulation and therefore loved to talk smack, especially about their competition. This tabloid treatment made Eliza step down after five years as literary editor. She later wrote that life was so terrible at that time that the only thing that got her through was her dog. Eliza Jane Nicholson had a beloved dog named Matt. Amanda tells me this as she's pulling up a photo on her computer. She's curating an exhibit at the collection called Voices of Progress, which features 20 women who changed New Orleans, Eliza being one of them. We're looking through images of some of Eliza's items that will be on display, which leads us back to the pup. When he passed away, she was very distraught, and she had one of its paws preserved and made into a brooch. And so here it is. I'll show it to you. Wow. Yeah. It's like kind of longer than I thought it would be. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> like, I guess I thought it was going to be, you know, like a broad, like, like just the paw, but there's like a whole arm situation oh, yes, happening. Yes. So is that going to be in like the hands-on kids area of the museum? <laughs> like under, like in a sandbox? <laughs> I don't know. I think that might be a little traumatizing to some of our children. <laughs> While Eliza was hanging at home wearing her dog paw, Colonel Holbrook had sold the Picayune, but then watched the new owners manage the paper so poorly that he bought it back from them along with a massive amount of debt. But then he died, leaving the near-bankrupt paper in Eliza's hands. Her relatives encouraged her to just let it die, declare bankruptcy, come back to Mississippi, live you know, nice, quiet, rural life. But she decided that she instead was going to take over the newspaper and turn it around and bring it out of financial ruin and make it prosperous again. And she wasn't going to turn it over to someone else, Pat Brady says. She was going to run it. And she went downtown back when all the newspapers were on Camp Street by Lafayette Square. Came in dressed, dressed to the teeth, great big hat. She was, came down in her family carriage. And she walked in and she said, these are the plans. I'm not letting the paper die. I will be running it. If there's some of you who don't care to work for a woman, then that's fine. But if you stay, know that I'll be the boss. You're listening to Tripod, New Orleans at 300. I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson. So she was this young, bossy. She changed the masthead to Mrs. Alva Holbrook, publisher. She was dynamized. She was running this thing. 
This was 1876. Immediately, Eliza transformed what was a very straightforward smoking man's paper into what she called a family paper. Which meant that there were features for all the family. She really hyped up the literary part. She started a society column, which was one of the first in the nation. And she started the weather frog and had weather reporting and a children's corner so the whole family could take the paper and and use their part. And she tripled the circulation. This impressed all the men who stayed to work for her, especially business manager George Nicholson. A year and a half after her first husband died, Eliza and Nicholson married and ran the Picayune together. This is when Eliza really started opening doors for other women. Not only did she hire a lot of women, more than most papers in town did not have any women in them, but also she paid them exactly the same that she paid men in the same position. Eliza's 19th century version of leaning in was largely accepted by men, probably because they all had crushes on her too, but her homemaker lady peers weren't as down. She was out in the workplace and hiring other women to do the same, including the world-famous advice columnist Dorothy Dix. Eliza Jane wrote letters with other professional women around the country who empathized with each other about the fact that their ambition ended up ruffling the feathers of some of these non-working women. So she really, she did not have many women friends. There was a barrier between what she had done and what they had not done. So that's my gal. After 20 years of running the paper together, Eliza's second husband, George, got the flu and died. She caught it from him and died 11 days later in 1896 at the age of 53. She was survived by her two sons, who took over the business, and the Picayune remained a locally owned newspaper well into the 20th century. Who knows how Eliza would have navigated or thought of the digital world with newspapers. Her trusty weather frog survived the digital shift, though. My editor freaked out about this. And the weather frog's on Twitter? Here he is. I've been the Times-Picayune's pot-bellied weather prophet off and on since January 13th, 1894. Follow. (laughs) But he hasn't tweeted since 2013. I have to think this would make Eliza sad, which probably makes Joseph Mako sad. Oh, little Eliza, little Eliza Jane. There he is, all starry-eyed again. You know, there's the famous song that some of these brass bands sing these days. Uh, Every time I hear that song, I think, is this about her? Is this about Eliza Jane Nicholson? And it's probably mine, but it can be for me. (laughs) Before we go... Cold weather this last January caused some power bills to double and even triple across the Gulf South. Now some Alabama customers are questioning how much can really be blamed on just the cold. This brings us to February's Utility Bill of the Month. Stephen Basaha of the Gulf States Newsroom reports on what and who is to blame when the bills go up. Before we get to Wilbert's heating bill, it's important to know his apartment is tiny, like 400 square feet tiny. The living room is basically all couch, going from the front door to kitchen counter. But what really sealed the deal, to be perfectly honest, was when I walked outside the door ready to leave the place, I turned to my left and looked and saw that. Oh, we got a great view of downtown. Fantastic view of downtown. We stepped outside to see Bert's view of Birmingham skyscrapers. He moved here from Tuscaloosa at the start of the year, and not long after that, he got a rare sight. He watched snow falling across the city. Yeah, the, the, the main reason behind, you know, our conversation today, more than likely. Yeah, right, well, we could not let this uh, warm air out. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. 
In mid-January, temperatures dropped across the Gulf South. In Birmingham, it got as low as 10 degrees. Still, Bert was not expecting an expensive heating bill. He wasn't home often and made sure to turn off the heat before he left. And so I'm expecting maybe probably like 30 or 40 bucks in power, if that. You know, and then I see more than three times that. That bill for his tiny apartment came in at 150 bucks. My first thought was just ask the community, hey, what's going on? Why is my power bill 150 bucks when I live alone and I'm you know, not here half the time? And when I am here, I don't do anything. He asked that question on Birmingham's Reddit page. The post got more than 100 comments showing he was not alone and that others here had it a lot worse. One person said their bill for January is normally around 200 to 250 and this past January it was 599 Look, the cold weather is obviously a big factor here, but some customers are pointing their fingers and blame for their bills at Alabama Power and state regulators like the Alabama Public Service Commission. And the commission has been pointing the blame elsewhere, their own fingers aimed at the Biden administration. The commission says Biden's energy policies are what's driving up electricity costs. In short, decisions on the federal level do affect the price of fuel, but so do a lot of other things like the war in Ukraine. Rachel Gold is with the nonprofit energy think tank Rocky Mountain Institute. When gas prices go really high, for example, we've seen volatility in prices um, that have led to doubling or tripling of bills. But Gold is not letting Alabama regulators off easy here. She says those regulators, the ones pointing the finger and blame at Biden, allow Alabama Power to pass 100% of its fuel costs to customers. If fuel costs spike, only customers take the hit. The company doesn't. Gold says that's the case in most states, and the result is utilities don't have a good reason to find ways to spend less on fuel. Utilities should have some skin in the game around fuel costs. Alabama Power blamed a large part of the rise in electricity prices on inflation. But inflation hasn't really hurt their bottom line. In fact, they made so much profit last year, regulators actually said they have to give nearly $15 million back to customers. But if you're the typical Alabama customer, don't expect much of a windfall here. For a standard household, we're talking like five bucks. We also have another big thing working against our bills in the South. Buildings here are a lot less energy efficient, so keeping them warm takes a lot more power. Because building codes aren't the most up to date and because in general, the region hasn't done as much to invest in energy efficiency programs, the quality of building stock is often lower. In fact, our states don't just use a lot of power. They use the most power. Literally, Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi are numbers one, two, and three when it comes to how much electricity gets used per customer, according to WalletHub. Now, some of the responsibility of keeping homes efficient and using less power comes down to the customer. For his part, Will Burt is now running an experiment. After spending 150 bucks on electricity, he's trying to see how low he could get his bill. He's learned that it's better to keep his heat steady rather than turning it on and off, and he's wearing warmer clothes. Yeah, fuzzy socks and, you know, the want a jacket. That's if you don't want to, you know, spend the money or roll the dice and potentially get a higher power bill. Now, warm socks and weather stripping your home can really make a difference with your power bill. Same with whatever happens on the global fuel market. But utilities and state regulators could be doing more to keep those bills down. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Stephen Basaha. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership among public radio stations in Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana. From 
WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Thanks to our guests, the Historic New Orleans Collection's family historian, Juriana Ray, and manager of programs, Amy Williams. Our assistant producer is Aubrey Purcell, and our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Greater New Orleans Foundation.